You might be wondering, uh, Pastor Matt, why a series, of course it was going to be Sunday through Wednesday, but why something on cross-cultural evangelism? You know, is it just because, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the ethnic and racial makeup of Carrie is changing? Well, that's certainly part of it. But I want to remind you, do you realize that this subject was the first hotly debated topic in the church? Do you realize that the first council of top religious leaders coming together, Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James, I mean pillars in the church, people who were like at the foundation of the church, who walked with Jesus, who were his apostles and others. Do you realize in Acts chapter 15, we have the Jerusalem Council where the whole subject was cross-cultural evangelism. The gospel is going to the Gentiles. Hmm. They think differently about things. They have a lot of cultural differences from Jerusalem and the surrounding area. What are we supposed to make of the gospel going to the Gentiles? So it was such a hotly debated topic that it's like we need to convene a council on cross-cultural evangelism. And it's interesting that in Acts chapter 15, I'll just read, it's not really part of the message, but um, Peter <clears throat> says, it says in verse 6, the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much disputing, and the idea of the word there is, this was quite a debate. What do we do about the gospel reaching into other cultures and engaging Gentile people with the gospel? We've, we've never been at this crossroads before. Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's referring back to chapter 10 with the vision that he had with the sheep that came down. And Peter's like, oh, I can't eat. Those animals are unclean. And God was like, excuse me, Peter. What God has said is clean is clean. Now arise and eat. And Peter's like, what is this? Oh, Peter, there's some guys at the gate. They're looking for you. Oh, there's a man who's a Gentile, Cornelius. He's calling for you to come and to preach the gospel to his household. And oh, and even Peter was sort of startled by this. Okay, this is a new thing. So God commanded the Gentiles should hear. And then it goes down in uh, verse 11. But we believe through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Then all the multitude kept silence, right? Because Pope Peter is speaking. <laughs> I say that tongue in cheek. And so they gave audience now to Barnabas and Paul, who had just been cross-cultural evangelizing all through the area. Okay, what miracles have happened through you guys? So they declared, and now another pillar in the church, when they had held their peace, okay, we're done. James answered and said, men and brethren, hearken to me. Simeon declared, I mean, remember baby Jesus comes into the temple and Simeon, this was well known at this point, spoke these words about Jesus, how God at first did visit the Gentiles to take out them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets. Let's not just go to Simeon. Let's go all the way back to the Old Testament. After this, I will return. I will build the tabernacle of David. I will build again the ruins and will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. And so it's interesting to me that the first hotly debated topic in the early church was 
What about cross-cultural evangelism? <laughs> is it authorized of God? Is it something the church should be doing? What is the evidence for this? And by the way, I have a whole message on that that I'm not getting a chance to preach. But the fact is, yes, it is important for the church biblically to have a foundation for cross-cultural evangelism. It is important biblically to say, yes, we need to be reaching the people in our neighborhood. And this is something God has authorized for the church to do and believers to do. And, and actually, if you go to the New Testament commissions for believers specifically, do you realize that nearly every one of them include the nations, right? And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. Luke 24. Or Matthew. The nations. Or Mark. Go into the whole world and preach the gospel to everyone, every creed, to all the nations. Okay. So it is a legitimate subject to consider, and we saw how Paul engaged an area, a culture, a people that he was unfamiliar with. He'd never been to this place. He was learning a lot of new things himself about the Areopagus and, oh, these people, they love to have knowledge, and they're always sitting around wanting to hear some new thing. That opens a door for me. That's a positive in their culture, right? Being open-minded. So tonight, let's look at how he actually gave the gospel. What did he start with? Where did he go? How did he engage these people in the topic of the gospel of Jesus Christ? So we looked at uh, verses um, up through verse about 22 today. 21, 22. And so now Paul is in the midst of Mars Hill, verse 22. And he says, you men of Athens, I perceive the word communicates the idea of insight, right? That insight has been through. How do you think he gained insight into what these men do, how they're thinking? How do you think he gained it? He listened to them. Want to hear how they think? We're going to see he observed them. Oh, I was walking around and I saw this altar and I saw this inscription that was on the altar. And observation, observation of cultures, how they do things, how they, how they, you know, what they talk about. What are the things that are on their mind? What are the things that I see that can help me to understand them? and can also give me inroads into talking about the gospel. I was sharing with someone today that I was over in India during uh, the springtime, and in the spring, as sort of a, it's part of the Hindu festival, uh, they have like this thing called the Festival of Colors, and and they literally just go around the town and then on their bodies and, I mean, they, they take all these bright colors, turquoise and, and you know, just very colorful. And, and literally, they will, like, paint the town and the buildings, not with paint, but, like, they'll throw these colors on them and they'll throw them on their bodies. And, and so I was in conversation with people on the street about, oh, tell me about this. What is this? What does it represent? Why do you do this? Why is this part of your culture? And I just love to ask these questions. And then they were looking at me like, well, what about you? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And they threw it on my clothes and I'll, it washes off. Okay. But uh, they threw it on my clothes, put it on my face, what have you. And I said, you know what? I know someone else who is amazing with colors, paints incredibly. And they're like, oh, really? Who? And I'm like, God. Do, do you know what he's done with the rainbow? You know, the yeah, that is true. And they were agreeing with me. Have you ever seen a rainbow? Oh, yeah, we've seen rainbows before. And I said, you know two of God's most beautiful colors? And they're like, 
No, we've never heard that. We don't know. I said two of his most beautiful colors are white and red. And then I proceeded to talk about Isaiah 1, chapter 18. If your sins are like scarlet, man, they'll be like white as snow. God paints in white, and he can do that because of the red of the blood of Christ. And they were sitting there listening to me, and, you know, I just had a chance to briefly talk with them about colors. And, but I learned about their festival first, and that they like colors, and they love to paint the town in colors, and... I at least had an opportunity to share, but God loves to paint hearts in colors. <laughs> he likes to make them clean through the blood of Jesus. And it's just amazing as you observe people and listen to people, how many different inroads there are into the gospel through just observing their culture and listening to how they talk. That's just one of the examples. So let's look at Paul here. And let's see what he does. I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions. Right? This is positive. Please understand. He is he's directing his conversation in a very positive way. You're devoted people. You're, you're very religious. In fact, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, and we actually get our English word agnostic from that word, okay? Whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him I declare unto you. And now he begins. So what are the main elements of a gospel presentation to someone who is an agnostic, who is an atheist, who is a um, uh, Hindu, who believes in reincarnation, who is a Buddhist, who believes in levels of whatever, who is a Shintoist and worships their ancestors. Or Where do you start? What do you do? Now, in many, many cases, and this is how I was taught, you would start here. You would say, Okay, I've been taught the Romans road. So here's what I'm going to say. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. First thing you need to see, you're a sinner. I mean, you've got some problems. <laughs> now, is that a legitimate point spiritually? Yes, it is. But I'm telling you, you don't start there. In fact, in many cases, when you start at the right place, they will actually make some of the deductions for you. They will know exactly where this is going. It's like when Jesus confronted the woman at the well, and he's like, okay, um, let's talk about God first. In fact, I have a message on, on John 4 that actually parallels what Paul is doing. Like we talked today, he had a burden. John 4, 4, I must needs go through Samaria. Jesus had the same burden. There's someone who needs to. And then we come to this first point. Where do you start? Here's where you start. You talk about God. In fact, notice where he starts. Look down in verse 24. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Jesus did the same thing with the woman at the well. You know what he said? He did not start here. Lady, you have a moral problem. You're an adulteress, all of sin. Oh, you know what Jesus said? He said this. Ah, water. If you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, you can have this water, you would ask him and he would give you living water. 
oh my goodness, that's palatable. You're talking about a God that is gracious, that is, Jesus doesn't start with, go call your husband. Oh, I'm, I'm living with a man and he's not my, yeah, you've had five husbands. Jesus, he gets to that point, but he doesn't start there. The same with Paul. Paul doesn't say, because right, the whole passage starts with, and when Paul got to Athens, he looked at the idolatry all around him, and he was just like, oh, I'm so burdened. But when Paul talks to people, he doesn't start with, you worship what, God? He doesn't go around denigrating and berating their gods and their idols and their, you know, tearing down their religious traditions and they will make those deductions when they start from the baseline. And you know what the baseline is? It's God. They need to understand who God is. And, and this is the connection that we all have in common. In fact, notice the uh, specific things that he talks about. He acknowledges this God as the creator and the Lord of the universe. Okay, now no other God makes that claim. So we are talking about someone completely different than who they are worshiping or who all the other cultures in the world worship. There is no claim by Muhammad or Buddha or any other person that, yeah, I made all this. No. Let's start. Here's the baseline. Let's talk about the Lord and the creator of heaven and earth. And actually, that is the baseline for anyone that is going to come to faith in Christ. There's a verse for this. Do you know what it is? Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's impossible. You can't do it. So where do you start when it comes to faith? For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. There has to be an acknowledgement of the existence of God. And we were in conversation at lunch today and uh, elsewhere as I talked with people that that has to be the baseline. That is the common denominator when it comes to a gospel witness. There has to be a place at which we start by which everything else is defined. Why? Because you can be talking to someone from a different culture about God and the God you're talking about and the God they have in their mind are two different things. In fact, back in the Old Testament, they were, they were polytheists at times. And they worshipped God, Jehovah God, but they also worshipped Baal, and they worshipped Ashtoreth, and they worshipped, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, God, he's just one of these gods, and there are all these, uh, no, 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 no. We are talking about, and that's why Paul starts here, God that made the world and all things therein. In fact, when you hear this phrase, what verse of the Bible does your mind go back to? Genesis 1.1. Let's start there. You know, sometimes um, a lot of people, when they're talking about personal evangelism, and then as we're talking today about cross-culture evangelism, a lot of people say, oh, let's go to Romans Oh, let's go to, well, I'm just telling you, sometimes, and maybe most of the time when it comes to people who have never been exposed to the Bible and Christianity, you kind of need to start in the Old Testament. You kind of need to start with this concept of God and, and who he is, because they, a lot of people in the world have a concept of God it's just not the God of Genesis 1-1. Or it's the, it might even be the God of the Bible, but he's mixed in with all these other gods and, and spiritual concepts. And no, we have to have a baseline by which all other gods and all other truth is measured. 
And that's why Paul starts here. So he acknowledges this God as the creator and Lord of the universe. Why? Because every culture in some way acknowledges the existence of a higher being, someone who is greater, someone who is bigger than all of this, someone who is stronger, that cannot be contained or manipulated by man. Notice what Paul said. He's not worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. A God that can be manipulated by men is not a God worth worshiping. I may as well be my own God, <laughs> right? So Paul is making it very clear here that, that this concept of God is different than what you've been exposed to, is different than what you're thinking, something very different maybe than than what's been going on inside your head or inside your heart. And I know that uh, there are some nations in the world that won't acknowledge God and their official position, even governmentally, is that we are an atheistic country, we don't believe in God. We... But you know what's interesting? I have met people from those countries and they've actually said things to me like this. Well, we know what the position of our government is, but yes, I believe there's a God. Okay? How, how does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. Ecclesiastes 3. There's a time for war and a time for peace and a time for this and a time for that. And he says, everything is beautiful in its time. You know what he also says in Ecclesiastes 3, 11? And God hath also set eternity in men's hearts. There is a sense in every man that he is an eternal being, that he will live somewhere forever, that he is a spiritual being, that he is bearing an image. It's instinctive. It is built into the DNA, into the psyche. And that's why you can go to a culture like an Aborigines culture and they, they've never had any exposure, if you will, to humankind, to modern anything. They've never had a Bible. And in the middle of their camp, there is something that they worship, and they have rules in their camp about murdering, lying, and stealing other people's things. Where did that come from? They've never even been in a church. They've never even read about Where did that come from? It comes from this thing called conscience, which God gives to every single person who's ever born. And their conscience registers the moral law of God. Whether they're Jew, whether they're Jew, you don't have to have a written law to know that there's a law. Romans 2, there's a law called your conscience, and your conscience registers the rightness or the wrongness of every single action. So Paul starts with, first, let's talk about God. Let's make sure that we're on the same page with who is this, that to the unknown God. Okay, first there's an acknowledgement that there's a God here, but he can't be known. Well, first of all, you have that word God on your altar. Let's talk about who is that. Not only that, but Paul says, this God is self-sufficient, he is self-reliant, he is self-governing, he is set apart, though he is the creator, he is set apart in this way from creation, and yet he is so intimate with his creation that he is the one that is responsible for all the life that exists here. In other words, he is making this point, and they are deducing it, that this God that you say you can't know, let's first define him. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's self-governing, self-reliant, self-sufficient. He isn't manipulated by man. It's not a God that we can make of our own choosing. He exists apart from us, but the very fact is your life, the fact that you're breathing right now, is rooted in his life. 
In other words, your very existence comes from this God. And in that sense, I know we have cultural differences, but when it comes to God and just the understanding that there's an existence of a higher power, a higher being, someone who is responsible for all of this, even the, you know, the creation, my body, my breath, my life. Okay, that God, <laughs> that God that is not a force, he is a person. And despite all of our cultural differences, food, location, language, whatever it is, whatever cultural differences we say we have, there's actually something that is the same about all of us. And you know what it is? It's this life source that connects us all. Are you alive as a Chinese? Yeah, I'm alive as an American. We're connected. Are you alive as a, you know, whatever culture, nationality, ethnicity you want to... We are all rooted to the same source of life. That's all Paul is trying to say. Yeah, you're, you're men from Athens, but you know what? We're one and the same. Because the God who gave me life to preach this message, who saved me, is the same God that is giving you life. And if we recognize that, if we at least start there as a baseline, then we can actually get somewhere. Now, he's just giving them this this concept of God that they need to get, that they need to understand. And I want to encourage you, again, when you talk with people in a cross-cultural gospel type of setting, do not start with their idols and do not start with their, uh, their sinfulness and do not start with, oh, you worship this and you do that. And let me show you all the things that are wrong with your religion. Just start with this. Hey, let's talk about God. In fact, you might even want to ask them. Um, do you ever have you ever heard the name God or the name Jesus? What do you know about it? <laughs> Could you tell me what you've heard? Oh, that's a good place to start. Let's talk about a concept of God. And you go all the way back, if if you want to, to Genesis 1. God created man. Revelation 4.11, man was created for God's glory. Oh, so we mirror him. We, oh, that's a huge point when it comes to the gospel and, and uh, Jesus Christ making all things new again. So he starts with God. And in verses 24 and 25, he really takes the, define, the time to define who are we talking about? Critical. Start there. Okay? Verse 26. Now this God, I love this verse, has made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitations. I want you to notice the phrase, all nations of men. Nations, that word is actually the Greek word ethnos, our word ethnicity comes from that word. And the word man is the word you probably know, you probably actually know this Greek word, it's anthropos. So every ethnos of anthropos, every ethnicity of mankind, the nations, all of that, God is responsible for. Every ethnicity expressed in humanity is God's doing. Just like he made a previous point, okay, where he said, God made these things and he doesn't need anything because he gives life and breath and all things. Okay, the same God who connected us by virtue of just giving us life and breath and the fact that we have an existence is the same God that also said, but 
in that humanity, there will be differences, and I recognize them. There will be various ethnicities throughout mankind. In fact, so much so, he determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Literally, God ordered beforehand their times of existence and the location of their culture. This is where they will live. This is where this culture will prosper. This, and, and you look around the world and it's like, that is interesting. These people have settled here and these people have settled here and these people have settled here for thousands of years and these people have settled because you might think, oh, the whole culture would just get up and move somewhere else. And it doesn't. After all these thousands of years, it still has stayed. You, you look at various ethnicities throughout the world and if I mentioned to you, you know, an ethnicity, like if I said, oh, Asian in terms of a culture, you would immediately think of a specific part of the world, wouldn't you? Why is that? Oh, oh, here's the verse. Yes, we are all one blood. He already made that point. The same God gives to every ethnicity, every ethnos of anthropos, life, and breath, and existence. They all have that. But they all live in different locations, and they all speak different languages, and they all have different cultures. And yes, God determined that too. So this also is his doing. But the point that Paul is going to make through that is this. There are things that are the same. And there are things that are different culturally. But the cultural differences do not totally divide us. Why? You mean we're united too? Yes. We are united, one, by virtue of the fact that we all breathe air and have bodies that live and have an existence. But two, he's going to jump right in out of this saying, I recognize those differences are from God too, but no matter what ethnicity of man, God has created men to do two things all the same. You might eat different food, but there are two things all the same. You might speak a different language, but there are two things all the same. You might be a different color, but there are two things all the same. You might live in a different location, but there are two things all the same. It does not matter what race, culture, ethnicity, it doesn't matter. And here's what they are. And I love how Paul does this. Our existence, we get life from God. Everyone who has life is united back to this one God. So you got to get the concept of him right. And then from there, I'm going to be honest. I recognize there are differences. They were all put here by God. He's the one that ordained this. He prearranged it. He knows exactly what he's doing with anthropos and ethnos on the earth. But even though there are those differences, here are the two things that are all the same. And it's almost simplistic. It's like, really? Those are your two points? But it's like, every man can get this. It's not that hard. Here they are. Number one. Verse, uh, down in verse 26. He made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. There's the first one. He made us all to live somewhere. Okay. He's making a point. All of humanity is united in this, that no matter whether they live 
in different locations, eat different foods, speak different languages. Here's the point. They're all alive. Because if they're dead, they're not part of humanity right now. <laughs> okay. We all, God made them to live. Here's the second thing. Verse 27, that they should seek the Lord. And that's also an infinitive. Literally, you can say, if you go back and you simplify that statement, it would read this way. And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to live and to seek the Lord. To have life and to seek God. He's making his point that, in fact, when he talks about seeking the Lord, he says, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. I love the term because uh, it's used two other times in the New Testament. You know what one of the times is? The word for feel here? Whenever Jesus appeared to Thomas and he said, Thomas, touch me. Put your finger right there in my hands. Touch my flesh. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see me have. Go ahead. And also in 1 John 1, 1, where John, uh, speaking of Jesus Christ, he said, we touched him. We, we, we actually did this. And so Paul says, you know, all of humanity, despite the differences, is connected in this way. One, they have life. And all the life points back to God. So too, God has put it in your DNA to seek him. In fact, let me be honest with you. No matter what anyone says, oh, I don't believe in God. I don't believe there's a God that exists. No, I just believe we die and we all go to dust. And we, no, it's not true. There literally is in the DNA of every single person who has life that there is something from God, two things that connect them to all of humanity. One is they have life. There are two things the Bible says about God. You know what they are? And John puts this, God is life and God is light. They have life. Okay, where did that... Uh... God, and two, that they would seek to get back to God because he's not far from every one of us. You know how Paul presents the Athenians and how he presents humanity? Just like this. Like, why else would you have an altar that says to the unknown God? You know why? Because you're looking for him. <laughs> he presents all of humanity this way. He's here. I know he's here. I know he's somewhere. Is this it? Is, is, is this it? Is this it? He's looking. He's touching. There's this spiritual GPS that's built into every human heart that says, I have life. All other humanity has life. And I'm seeking to get back to the source of that life. And that's in every person. That's why you have, if you stop and think about things religiously, that would explain reincarnation, right? There's life. There's, there's better life. There's, because you're looking to get back to the real source of life. Again and again and again. That would explain different versions of heaven that people have, whether it's Muslim or just that, oh, there are levels and, and this one, but this one's better, but this is the highest, but because you're seeking to get back to the source of that life. So Paul is, he, he's going to boil this down to where they understand there are two things that unite us all. And they're very simple. 
You have life and you are seeking God who is the source of life. Okay. And if you listen to people and you let them talk long enough, you'll hear it eventually. They might be suppressing truth, Romans 1. They might be, but just listen to them. In fact, let's go on to verse 28. For in him, this is the life part. In him we live and we move and we have our being. So he, he talked about this concept of God. Then he talked about the differences of anthropos and the different ethnicities. And he talked about the two things that unite us across all cultural differences. You have life and you are seeking the source of life, which is God. So, verse 28, he's going to come back to this. In him, this God, this concept of God, this person that I told you about, he is the one that gave you life. And he is the one that allows you to move. And he is the one that gives you your existence. And now I love what he does here. Ready? And even your secular writers acknowledge this. <laughs> Your own poets have said, we are also his offspring for as much then as we are the offspring of God. And he goes on. Now, you know what I love? That Paul was observant enough of the culture that he had read some of their books, probably some of their philosophy books and some of their college textbooks or, you know, whatever else it might be. And he said, you know what? Within your own culture, do you realize this is recognized that people are seeking God? Go travel around the world. And you know what you'll find? Study, even from countries that say we don't believe in God. Study religious worship. They have it. Study their secular literature. There are people who have written about life and eternity and the afterlife. And it's like, your own people have written stuff about this. People that are revered. People that they look at and say, oh, these from the past, these are the great writers and thinkers. And, and now we study their books. And it's like, yeah, read their writings. Look at their philosophies and teachings. Look at their writings. In fact, you know one interesting way? Look at their art. Look at the way they even build their buildings. I was in a country that was not very, uh, you know, I don't know what I would say, tolerant of God, or, you know, it wasn't like they were completely atheistic, but, you know, there wasn't much credence given to God. And I was walking in a city and I looked up on a building, and I wish someone was there because I wanted to say to them, could you explain that cross to me up there? And it was on a public building in a public part of town. It, like, I couldn't miss it. I'm like, there's a cross on that building. That goes back to something. So as much as a culture might want to admit or say, no, no, that yes, yes. There's a GPS, it's built in to live and to seek God. Let me read your own writers. Let me talk about your own philosophers. Let me look at your own, call attention to your art. Let me talk about religious systems that have been in play all the way in the past. It it's there in the culture. There's something about God because it is built into the DNA, into the GPS of every human heart. And Paul says, even your own writer said that we're God's offspring. What are you going to do as a culture? <laughs> are you going to shame your own culture? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. They, they weren't part of our... No, your own people have written about this, okay? So I love the way he brings this point in. And verse 29 now says, okay, so if we are the offspring of God, 
Let's not think that God is like unto gold, silver, stone, graven by art and man's device. All right, remember, the very fact that you have life mirrors God's existence. That's why he started with God. There has to be a baseline for measuring all of this. So he starts with God, who is the giver of life, who is the creator of the universe, who is the Lord of the universe, and he launches from there, and he's going to come back to this point and say, okay, so if we are the offspring of God, then why are we trying to represent him in a way that is not accurate? Oh, well, that wouldn't be right. Because if God is life, and in fact, I want you to notice the terms, he gives uh, life and he gives, for in him we live and move and have our being. Life, breath, movement, in fact, our English word kinetic comes from this word kinetic energy. You can actually do things. You can make things. You can be productive with your hands or your feet or whatever you do. Kinetic energy and just our existence. That takes in the whole of man. He's both a physical and a spiritual and an emotional and a mental being. Okay? So if we are God's offspring, which your own writers have said, and that is mirrored in the fact that we have life and we have kinetic energy and we have the total package of existence. Does that idol move? No, I move it around in my pickup truck. Seriously, they'll make the deduction. Okay, so we are, if, if we mirror God in the fact that we have breath and we have kinetic energy and we have this package of existence, how can something that is inanimate and dead and doesn't move, remember what Paul said and Isaiah said, they have eyes but they can't see and they have ears but they can't hear. How does that relate to the concept of God and he's just logically helping them to come to the understanding that what they are worshiping is not God at all. And that's the point about cross-cultural evangelism. And I agree with Pastor Joe. Folks, from verse 20, uh, what is that? Verse 23 or 24, God that made the world and all things therein, down to verse 29, God is not like gold and silver and stone and, and just that alone, those five verses alone, we read them, we could read them very quickly here. Just those truths right there might take two years, three years, five years <coughs> just for them to understand who God is and how humanity is united in living and seeking after God. And then they will start to make deductions like, Oh, gods that I move around in my pickup truck are not God. Or being reincarnated into an animal or some other form of life is not, that's not being connected to the source of life. That's what Paul's doing, just logically laying out. So it's like, now do you see? Now do you recognize? This is what you've been worshiping. This is where you're at. And now, only now, after all of that, does he say this. Verse 30. And the times of this ignorance, God winked at. The idea there is that he just, not dismissed it, but he just patiently overlooked, you know, just... I realize that these are spiritually ignorant people and I'm not sending my son to judge them. That's going to come up later. But, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. 
Now we get to God looking past our ignorance to the day of Christ. And now that Christ has come, okay? So, when Jesus came to earth, and this is why the concept of God cannot be truly understood without this physical representation of Jesus Christ in the flesh. That's why it's so important. When Jesus Christ came to earth, what did he do? What, what did he look like? Did he breathe? Yeah, he was alive. Did he have kinetic energy? Yeah, all the way till he died. In fact, at one point, he carried the beam of his cross. Was he physical and spiritual and emotional? And Oh, yeah, the record scripture is very clear. And that's what God looks like. So trying to represent God with something that doesn't breathe and, and doesn't have kinetic energy and doesn't, and that's why he says, how can you grave something in stone or gold and say, I'm going to worship this? Because your DNA says, that's not right. Because to live and to seek you're grasping, you're looking, but let me tell you who that God is. And that's where Paul goes with the culture. Just let me help you. I just, I appreciate your devotion and your desire, and it's obvious that you're seeking. Let's just talk about who you are seeking. And finally gets to the point of repentance. You need to change your mind. You need to change your thinking. It takes time to get there. That's always, no matter what culture you are, that's always an uncomfortable conversation. But at this point, when they understand, there's no longer any excuse. Once they've seen God, once you've presented the truth, it's like, okay, then then. You need to deal with your sin. You need God wants you to change your mind. And there's a confrontation with being born again, dealing with their sin, confessing with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believing your heart God raised him from the dead. Now, here's what I want to say when it gets to that point. Let it be spirit-induced conviction that brings repentance rather than you. There is no need to ever force any gospel conversation just to get someone to pray a prayer or make a decision. You know what I'd much rather? Fine, go home. Read that passage some more. I'm here, here's my number. You can text me, you can call me, we can meet at the coffee shop, just, just think about it. Oh, but but what if they die tomorrow? What if they get, I used to like be that way, like, no, no, push it home, push it home, because then you don't know how long they might, oh, I don't know how many conversations or decisions were mine, or I, you know, I'm just saying, I know sometimes my heart was in the right place, but it's like, no. No. Just let them think on that. They've had no concept of the true God. Give them time to think about it. They're looking for something, but they're groping for this and, and that. And just present the truth to them and let them just really, let the Spirit form all of that into something that gels in their head and in their heart. And they say, that's it. I remember years ago um, when we planted a church in Hawaii. We were there five years, and there was this couple one day that showed up at our church, never met them before. And the husband had been exposed to Christianity in the U.S. in the state of Missouri, but the wife, uh, she had lived in Hawaii her whole life, and she had grown up a very, very, very staunch traditional Roman Catholic. Well, after probably only three months, Jerry got saved. 
just, I see it, I get it, I just need to be saved. Okay, fantastic. Natalie, on the other hand, months and months and months and months and months and months. And sometimes you're up there preaching, you're like, oh my goodness, when is she going? How much clearer could it be? Don't force the conversation. Don't you push anything. And months and months. And finally, one day, one day, Natalie goes, Pastor Mark, can we talk? Yeah, sure. What's on your mind? I get it now. I see it. The light clicked on. I, and that was it. Wow. You're talking about revolutionary. And that's what happens cross-cultural. Give them time. Let them chew on it. Let them ask questions. Let them just think through it. Just pray for them. Just let it go. It's not your obligation to save them. You did the seed sowing. Just let God work with them, the Spirit work with them. And Paul takes a really long time before he says, okay, now, yeah, this ignorance, God sort of, but there does come a time where you have to acknowledge it as sin and you have to repent. So he doesn't let them off the hook. Jesus doesn't let the woman at the well off the hook. So what happens at this? And we'll close. Now, the reason I pointed out to you, it's important to understand that God appointed uh, the times and seasons and bounds because the same thing is going to come up again. Verse 31, and he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he hath ordained. He has given assurance unto all men and that he raised him from the dead. So just as humanity, every ethnos of anthropos, had prearranged times and locations from God, God also has preordained Christ to sit in judgment on humanity on a fixed day. And it's absolutely certain it cannot be avoided or changed. God's seal of it is this. He raised Jesus from the dead. So he calls for repentance. And the reason he calls for repentance and people to change their minds is because there is a day of reckoning. There is a day of judgment. And all of this encompasses the gospel. From Genesis 1, God who created heaven and the earth, to God who created man and every ethnos of anthropos, and God who fixed all these seasons and pointed these boundaries, this is the God. And you know what? Um, the way that you're worshiping him, you know, you have life like all of humanity and you're seeking after God like all of humanity. But the way that you're doing it is not according to the truth. So you need to repent because Jesus Christ is coming to judge all of humanity one day. And it's certain you will face that judgment. The only way to avoid it is to accept his son, Jesus Christ. And there's your gospel. Last point. So how did they respond? There will always be varying responses. Some mocked. Some had questions. In verse 34, some believed. Okay. It's not my responsibility. I did my part. And I can walk away knowing I took the opportunity that God gave me. I did the best that I could with it. I'm not responsible for their soul. I'm not responsible for their response. They might laugh at me. Okay? I move on. They might say, Got some questions about what you were talking about. Fantastic. Let's talk. Do you have any more questions? No. And you may not hear from them. 
maybe even for a very long time. Okay. And some might say, I get it, and the light clicks on, and boom, salvation. So, there's a lot in this passage. Thank you for your patience. Uh, I hope you understand a little bit of more, anyway, about cross-cultural evangelism. And let me just throw it open to the floor for questions. Or comments. Or ways that you have found successful in reaching cross-culturally.